Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Welcome to Law and the Family. I'm Aaron Weems, and with me is my co-host, Anthony Hoover. Today, we welcome Mark McCreary, a corporate partner and one of my colleagues at Fox Rothschild. Mark's based out of the Philadelphia office and is the co-chair of the Privacy and Data Security Practice. Mark is a certified information privacy professional and focuses on compliance with privacy-related law, rules, regulations, as well as responses to data breaches. Mark is a recognized leader in his field, and among the many duties that Mark has is to educate both members of my firm and also our clients about uh, about data breaches, privacy, and protection. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Great. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate you having me here. Um, I can tell you that uh, it's an audience that I like to talk to because lawyers are very much to focus on when it comes to criminals trying to get our information and our clients' information. So I appreciate you uh, allowing me to speak with you all. You bet. And I think that's a great place to start because I know that everyone seems to know about data and information that they're putting out on the internet, but I think a lot of us don't necessarily understand that concept in a practical sense. So why don't we start from the very beginning and tell us about what information we're putting out in the world and why we should care about that? Sure. The, the, interesting, the interesting and easy response is what information are we not putting out there? Starting with client data. I mean, we all as practitioners have a lot of our clients' information that's stored in our email, it's stored in a document management system. It's probably stored in places that it shouldn't be. Uh, in addition to official records. So we have a lot of copies of data that belongs to our clients or that we create for our clients that's floating out there that, of course, has the uh, ethical bubble wrapped around it that we have to protect, that we have to be careful with. Uh, But what I think is also just as important is our personal data, Uh, what we're sharing, what we're giving out to third-party companies. We all hear about Facebook, now known as Meta, uh, all the information we give them and all the information that's possibly being given to other services of our own personal information. So when it comes to our online life, is which, which is most of our life right now, there's very little paper communication we do and very little oral communication that we do that's of record at least. Uh, most of it is digital. And when it becomes digital, it becomes at risk. So it's all that data. And the past 19 months or so since the pandemic began, we've seen nothing but a, a monthly increase in the number of attacks that occur, uh, the number of law firms, the number of accounting firms, the number of public institutions that actually get affected by ransomware and data breaches. And all of that different data is affected. It's all very disparate data. But I mean, for purposes of, of your listeners, I think what they should really be focusing on is their client data because of their ethical obligations and, of course, their personal data because it's going to matter most to them. And and Mark, just for, for what you do, can you just give our listeners an example, not necessarily an example, but why would someone why would someone come to you? Right. So there, there's a couple of different things that we do in our, in our practice group, like many law firms practice groups. We're broken into different silos. One silo that uh, I spend a lot of time in is incident response. So if your law firm, if yourself personally is affected by ransomware, for example, uh, it used to be they would just lock up your data and make you pay to give it back. They never took it. They never did anything with it. They just had it encrypted and you don't have the keys. That changed a couple of years ago where the criminals got a little bit smarter 
And what they started to do was exfiltrate data. They would take it. So instead of just locking up your data, they would take a copy of it. And then they would impose what we refer to as a double ransom. One, pay me to give you the key so you can get your data back. And two, pay me not to publish it on the dark web because you don't want that information out there. And that's where it became really tricky for, for us as practitioners. Uh, before we could have a client come to us and say, all right, my data is locked up. They want me to pay them $3,000. What should we do? And we tell them, well, you the only reason you would really pay is if you don't have another copy of that data or if it would take longer for you to restore that data than it would to uh, decrypt it with the key. But as soon as they take that data, you have an exfiltration. You have a problem. You have under state law of every state uh, in this country, a requirement if certain information is disclosed to notify the individual. You also have, if there's health information, maybe by your employees, if that information is compromised, you may have a HIPAA obligation to notify not only them, but also, also HHS. So it really depends on the industry. And I can tell you again, as your listeners mostly are attorneys, under several bar rules, state bar rules, they have ethical obligations to notify the client to let them know that information was taken. What that information is, I think is important to, to talk about. One, when it comes to what we refer to as PII or personally identifiable information, it's this. It's a first name and a first initial plus a last name plus something else. And that something else is typically a financial institution account number, a credit card number, a debit card number, a license, a license number, a passport, uh, sometimes medical information, often biometric information, and in two states, date of birth. Um, so it's really considered to be sensitive information, things that you really don't want out there. And if you do manage to have that information exfiltrated by a, a criminal through a ransomware attack or otherwise, or even accessed where it could possibly have been exfiltrated, you do have a legal obligation to notify those individuals. Uh, that applies to any business. For law firms, again, it becomes an ethical obligation or lawyers, it becomes an ethical obligation. If you lose your client's data, you typically have an ethical obligation to notify them that somebody else accessed it or took it. Uh, so it becomes quite onerous. I mean, it becomes really problematic if you do have a ransomware event where that data is exfiltrated. So the, the criminals that take this data, where are they putting it to the extent that, the, you know, ransom's not paid or even if a ransom is paid, they do it anyway or they don't. I, I think maybe even in some cases it's not that, you know, they take it just to publish it. They're not even asking for a ransom. Where is this data going? It depends. If they're taking it to punish, uh, you're right. They will just publish it on what's referred to as the dark web. Uh, the dark web, it's the internet, but it's not indexed. So if you search Google, things on the dark web will not appear. You have to use what's called a Tor browser, T-O-R, Tor browser, where you can go and search those, those areas much more efficiently uh, than you would with Google. And so what's there is basically the underbelly of the internet. There's probably a crime being committed there that you can't not imagine. I mean, it's just everything happens there, whether it's drug trade, uh, human trafficking, sale of social security numbers, it's all on the dark web. And that's where they will publish the information typically. And the reason they publish it there is one, again, if they're doing it to punish, if they're trying to expose secrets of a multinational corporation and how they're doing bad things, people will go there and they'll find that information. It will become public to people like you and me. Uh, so it, that's how they punish people with it. Uh, if it's credit cards, for example, because that's usually a good example of why information is taken in ransomware, they will go sell those credit cards for, you know, 30 cents a piece for a good number and a CVV code and that kind of thing. So it's really, that's where they will publish it. Now, when they take the data, where does it go is actually a really interesting thing. 
So if I'm a, what we refer to as threat actors, if I'm the criminal. So if the threat actor manages to access data in your law firm, what they do is they will download it and it will actually go to their computer. It's not going to the dark web immediately. So they'll have some sort of place where they'll store this information. It could be as sophisticated as Amazon Web Services. It could be as unsophisticated as a large hard drive attached to their computer. It really just depends. What's become really, really interesting about that is when they take data now, they are often taking terabytes of data at a time, huge amounts of data at a time. And it's been reported in the threat actor slash ransomware community, they're out of space. Uh, they've been so successful at taking all this information, they don't have anywhere to put it right now. So um, it's becoming problematic for them. It's probably a kind of a boon time for hard drive makers uh, because they need this place to store this data. Uh, but when they take the data initially, they're not publishing it because they want to extort you. They want to get a ransom out of you. If you ignore the ransom, you refuse to pay it, you can't pay that much, whatever it is, they will then publish it to the dark web where it becomes what I would say publicly available. Anybody with the right resources and knowledge can go access access that data. And we talked about, I mean, we're talking about law firms here because I mean, this is a you know a family law podcast, but you know, what other type of entities are frequent targets of this type of criminal? So there, there's two answers to that. One is what I refer to as like the drive-by victim. Uh, someone just happened to click on the wrong email, they gave their credentials, and suddenly their, their personal computer or even their work computer is compromised. That's not a targeted company or person. It just They just got unlucky and they weren't paying attention that morning. Uh, the second is much more interesting where they go and they actually target the company. And we're seeing a lot more of this recently. Uh, we'll see it in healthcare, even though they swore at the beginning of the pandemic they were going to stay away from healthcare companies because uh, of the risk and the uh, focus being taken away from finding things like a vaccine. Uh, but they will focus on companies like healthcare companies, law firms, financial institutions. Uh, there's been a very big focus on higher education in the past year or so, also on school districts. And then finally, we're seeing a lot in the uh, municipality area, the, the local government, state government type area, where they will focus on those institutions and those governments to try to block them up because they know, one, they probably have ransomware insurance where they can pay the actual ransom. And two, uh, they know that these companies and these governments can't stay shut down for very long. So they're more likely to pay the ransom. Mark, you said something that kind of piqued my interest a little bit. You said that, uh, you know, quote unquote, they would stay away from from healthcare companies. Are you suggesting there's sort of like an international federation of hacker that uh, that works in concert with each other to sketch out who they're going to attack and when? And, and, and I'm being a little facetious, but the reality is, is there sort of an organized hackers, organized uh, groups of hackers that work in concert with each other to, uh, to obtain this information? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it's not like they're unionized. Uh, we haven't gotten that far with it. But what we're definitely seeing is there are known groups that are out there. Uh, CLOP was a good example, K-L-O-P, CLOP. Uh, they were an organization that has since broken up that I believe was responsible for the pipeline ransomware that happened recently that was all over the news and created a surprising amount of chaos. I think a lot of uh, people learned a lot from what can happen with that. Those groups, they are kind of in concert. They do kind of act the same way and they do you know, tend not to overstep. One, because they know that you know the, the more attention they get beyond just being what we'll call run-of-the-mill criminals, it's worse for them. But two, almost all of those groups are state-sponsored. Um, a lot of people just don't appreciate how, how much that happens, how much those are actually sponsored by countries like Russia and China. Um, and it's been proven. Uh, you know, there's, there's really no mystery around that anymore. Um, I can tell you in some of the ransomware events and active actual infiltrations that we've investigated ourselves, it's really interesting that we will see them active in the environment 
between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Russian time, for example. So you can imagine these people actually go to an office every day, just like you and I do, and their job is to infiltrate companies to find out what's in there. They will sit in those systems for months before they attack so they can learn what they want and take the data that they want. And it's nine to five jobs for people. And all of this is, well, not all of this, much of this is sponsored by countries. And it's interesting that it approaches that way. Now, the one caveat I will say to all of that is there's also something known as ransomware as a service. Uh, where I can go on the dark web and I can purchase the tools and I can purchase the software and even potential targets to go after where I can become the threat actor and use those tools to infiltrate companies or individuals. Now, when that happens, what's been reported is that there's kind of a code of conduct that comes with it. So the threat actors that are actually offering that software, that service, if I go to purchase it, they will tell me there's certain things that you can't do. There's certain organizations we want you to stay away from. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is organized. I mean, it, it's it's organized crime. And one of the other things that, you know, you talked about this, I mean, this organized crime from a financial perspective, again, some actual numbers that maybe even you've seen of sample or heard of sample cases out there for just an individual, right? Individual like myself, I get a, you know, advertisement for, I don't know, cycling something and I click on it. I shouldn't have. They lock up my individual system. What am I looking at here from a ransomware price tag? You asked me that question three or four years ago, I would have said two or three hundred dollars. Um, these days, it's somewhere probably north of ten thousand dollars. Now, that doesn't mean it's not negotiable. And that's only talking about individuals. If it's a company, it's going to be much more. If they know who they have and it's a big company, it's going to be in the millions of dollars. I can tell you, again, by way of example, there's a recent uh, ransomware attack that we represented a client on. And the initial demand was $22 million. Now, we managed to negotiate that down to a much smaller number, even though we had no intention of actually paying it. We were really just buying time. But it is a negotiable number. You know, the common belief on that is when it comes to like the, the not the individual, but the true business uh, negotiation is if you get to 50%, you're doing really well. So, I mean, we've seen it much lower than that. We've managed to negotiate much lower than that. But it really depends on the group. It depends on what data they have. I can tell you when we found that they were willing to accept a much lower number, than the number originally offered, it spoke to us that they probably don't have that good of data. Uh, they probably didn't exfiltrate as much as they're claiming they did. And what's interesting about that one is actually what happened when we refused to pay it. They did publish on the dark web. We were able to go out there and download all that data, and it wasn't that bad. I mean, there was stuff in there where we still had to make notifications, but it, it was not a $22 million theft, let's put it that way. And protections in place. So we, we've talked about things that can happen, you know, locking up data, publishing data. I mean, we might even, attorneys might even have some protections in place that maybe small practitioners don't even know about that they have. Some things that maybe are in place or that could be in place here to avoid some of these issues. Sure. So let's let's start with the very small practitioner, the solo, maybe doesn't have an IT department, is operating out of a Gmail account or something like that, which happens. I mean, that's we, we see it every day. In that case, the best advice I can give that person is to use the built-in security system that's offered in that email account. So for Gmail, for example, and this is true for Outlook.com or Yahoo.com or probably even Hotmail, uh, it's called multi-factor authentication or two-factor authentication. All you have to do is go to the security settings in your account and turn it on. And what happens is that every time that account is logged into from a new computer and sometimes a new location, they're going to cause you to actually put in a code that either gets phoned to you or texted to you or that's in an app where you say, yes, this is me. Without that additional code, that additional factor, the person trying to log in cannot log in. So let me say that differently. If you have that turned on, which again is free, 
It's probably about as protective as you can get without going to extremes. If you have that turned on, I manage to fish you. Can you give me your, your username and password for your Gmail account, for example? And I go to log into that from my computer. I cannot get in because I don't have the code that you just got texted. That's the number one thing that people can do. And I can tell you, other than really uh, true hacks that we that we deal with from a ransomware point of view, if that individual, if that company would have had multi-factor turned on, it never would have happened. So that's my number one, and that's everybody, but the most basic is just the, the small practitioner, small practice that's actually operating from more of a Gmail type environment. I want to jump in on, on uh, the phishing idea because you know, we talked a little bit about some of the more sophisticated, you know, organized crime aspect of this, but phishing kind of seems like the grassroots, good old fashioned, let me see what I I can get by sending somebody an email. And it is it still as rampant as it seemed to be a couple of years ago? Is it still sort of that lowest common denominator of invasion attempt? Yeah. So there's there's a couple of different avenues. Absolutely. In answer to your question, phishing is certainly still number one. Uh, but there's also some weaknesses that are out there, especially for unpatched systems. There's a protocol in Windows called RDP. It's Remote Desktop Protocol. It's got a lot of weaknesses to it. Um, and, you know, if you're not properly patched, it's not hard for someone to hack into your computer just by having that open, those ports open. Uh, there's also um, a lot of instances that we still continue to see where people will allow companies or threat actors onto their computer through a phone call. They'll call and say, hey, we're Microsoft. We've detected you got a problem with your computer. If you go to this website and let us on, we'll fix it for you. And then they walk you through it and they show all this stuff that's not really problematic. And in the meantime, they're downloading a bunch of data in the background. That still happens. I had a case yesterday with that from a medical practice of all things. Um, so that is still very common. And then finally, what we do still see a lot of, and I, I mentioned it before, but it's just the unpatched systems, uh, the zero day attacks. And zero day means that the company like Microsoft or Apple or whatever it is, is just learning about that threat as we are. And so there's no patch available. So there's always going to be some sort of gap with new weaknesses where the patch will be coming, but it's not available right away. Uh, we saw a lot of those this year with uh, printer spools in Microsoft, uh, where the printer spool, which is one of the most <laughs> basic old protocols on your computer right now, it's pretty weak. It's pretty broken. Uh, and they were able to find ways to hack into that. But Again, that's a long-winded answer to your question, which is absolutely ransomware is still the number one vector to get in. So another thing that I, I think I've heard you talk about, not in this phone call, but previously, is, is redundancy. What does that mean when securing data or at least having access to your data? Yeah, if you mean redundancy in the data, it means a couple things. One, by way of example, I think a lot of people believe that if they have a backup of their data, then they can beat ransomware. And that's not necessarily true. I would say most cases that we've investigated, the backup itself also gets infected with ransomware. Because what happens is ransomware doesn't just infect one computer and then come out and say hi. Uh, it infects one computer and it goes and looks for other things to do. It doesn't just stop there. It moves through the network. It moves very quickly. By way of a law firm example, there was one very large international law firm that it moved through their system incredibly fast to the point they had to shut everything down. That particular law firm, and this was several years ago, but that particular law firm remained without email access and without access to documents for upwards of weeks. Um, it was not like a, an afternoon kind of event. So we can all sit here and think for a minute what would happen if it's noon and you can't get access to everything till 5 p.m. the same day. It's absolutely devastating, right? Well, this was weeks where they could not get access to stuff, including their telephones, because their telephones were on the same network. And so imagine, imagine you're sitting there, you can't email your client, at least from your work computer. 
you can't access their email address because your computers are down, so you're not even sure where to email them. You probably don't even have their phone number again because you can't access it. And in the meantime, you're sitting there the whole time thinking they're trying to call you and they're getting a busy signal. It's really devastating when it happens. So don't think just because you have a backup, everything's fine. That immediately becomes subject to the ransomware. So the question then is, how do you actually backup data and make it not subject to where it can be attacked? And there's ways to do that. Uh, it's certainly possible. Um, it's beyond the scope of this you know, podcast, but there's certainly ways to do it. But I do unfortunately think a lot of your, your listeners will sit there and think, well, I know I have this system and I know that I have a backup of, his, of it, so I'm fine. And that's just not always the case. And not to go too deep on this, uh, but just having data in the cloud. I mean, safe, unsafe. I, I know different opinions on that. I mean, I think some people think like, look, I have my stack of data here. It's in a closet. I know where it's at. I know it's safe. So I feel really good about it. Speak to that if you wouldn't mind. Sure. It depends on what you mean by cloud. So I'll give a couple different examples. Many companies, uh, in, including ours, uh, have moved to Office 365. So you can either store your Exchange server on-premises at your, at your business, or you can have it in the cloud. A lot of companies are moving to the cloud for a lot of reasons. And I'm a big fan of the cloud. I should you know, start there. It depends on what you're using. And that's changed over the years. I used to hate the cloud, but I really do trust it now. But you get a lot of advantages from that. Number one, it's extremely unlikely Office 365 is ever going to be subject to ransomware. Uh, that's not the way it works. Uh, if you manage to get ransomware on your computer, it doesn't somehow migrate up to Office 365 in the cloud. That just your computer is affected, not your email. So if you do become a victim of ransomware, you're still going to have access to all your email because you just need to go to a different computer and pull it up on the internet. So that's number one. Number two is I don't care how good you are at patching your system and how much you're on top of it. Microsoft's better than you and they're more timely. So their systems are always going to be patched better than your email server is going to be. So that's a really valuable thing. And then finally, and I'll just, I could keep going, but I'll stop here. And this is not a plug for Microsoft. I mean, there's a lot of companies that do the same thing. They have a lot of redundancy, meaning that your email is not just sitting in Las Vegas. It's also sitting in probably seven different uh, server farms where it's just duplicated over and over. So they know that if we have a power outage in one part of the country, or we have um, something even more disastrous in one part of the country, that it's still going to be available from one of those other sites. So I'm a big fan of the cloud. Now, that being said, that's one type of cloud. There's also things called private clouds where you have it stored up in the internet, but also it's really stored at your site. It just happens to be available through the internet. And so that's much less valuable. It's much less going to protect you if you have some sort of ransomware event because that server itself can become subject to the ransomware. And the final thing I'll say about it is it depends on your vendor. Um, unfortunately, and this is true of many, many startups, they don't have a lot of money. They're in a lot of hurry to get to market and they don't have very good security. I mean, Zoom was a good example of that. When the pandemic really got into full swing and suddenly we all learned what Zoom was, uh, Zoom had a data breach and they lost uh, credentials of about half a million people. And it's because they were a small company that didn't have really the time or the focus on security and they had a problem. So, you know, you really got to vet your vendors if you're going to go to the cloud. You got to really think about what they what they do and what they promise and make sure you trust them because if they lose that data, that's your responsibility. And I can tell you also, whatever agreement you sign with them, they're going to say we, they have no liability for that loss. Let's just turn topics here a little bit, Mark. So we talked about our, our businesses, our law firms, schools. Let's just talk about individuals. So we are, you know, talking family law attorneys here and, you know, let's talk about our clients. You know, our clients, every single client that walks into our office has got a cell phone on them. Concern there? 
I mean, yeah, it's particularly no. if they're going through a they're going through a divorce or or child custody or support situation, anything that can happen to them. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things. I mean, one, you guys see this more than I do, but there's a pretty good chance the spouse knows passwords, um, and so access can happen to accounts pending a divorce or even after a divorce, uh, which I think is probably pretty dangerous. Uh, it's illegal, by the way. Um, it's certainly a, a federal crime, but that doesn't stop you know the upset wife or the upset husband from actually going out and logging into the other spouse's accounts. I mentioned before multi-factor. That's one thing that would avoid that. So if they have multi-factor on and the husband tries to log into the wife's email, he's not going to get in because uh, he doesn't have access to her phone. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, number two, and I, I think a lot of your brethren are starting to realize this now, many of the services track us. So if I'm a Facebook user, I'm a Google user, there's a record that's available and discoverable uh, to go out there and see where somebody was at a particular moment. Um, so for example, Google especially, uh, its users, unless you turn it off, there is a giant map you can see of everywhere you've been with a Google phone. Uh, and it shows everything down to the minute, basically, of where you've been. So from a discoverable point of view, uh, if someone were to try to uh, determine where somebody was, trying to see if there was an affair going on, something like that, there's probably a record out there. And that's something that I think, again, some practitioners are picking up on, but I think a lot of people ignore that. Uh, or don't know that it's available. So that's one thing to think about. And as far as just the data itself on the phone, I mean, phones, they're, they're inherently dangerous just because there's so much stuff on there. I'm hoping everybody uses Face ID or a passcode or something to lock up their phone. It's, it's really important to do that. But also to take a step beyond and just think about what's being shared with all these different companies. We may trust Facebook not to lose our data. I mean, who knows how they're going to use it? It's certainly against us, but they're not going to lose our data. But we also have a lot of other companies that we give information to that, like I talked about before, may not have great data security and may lose that information. And my favorite example, and I'll stop with this, my favorite example is the beloved TikTok. The number of people that are giving complete facial recognition information to the government of China is mind-blowing to me. And there was another one called like face off or something like that where you know kids would use it to do like facial scans and they can turn themselves into horses or whatever that information is not just going into the ether i mean that information uh, is going to other foreign countries and if i were to guess and again i don't want to sound too much like a conspiracy theorist here but i would guess that there is a very very large biometric database sitting somewhere in china that's got about 150 million u.s residents facial images on it um, so, and that's so, going to well, matter someday. Yeah. So let, let me just ask you a question. It's almost like, so those individuals who in a more historic concept don't want their fingerprints out there. You know, I, I'm someone who has never been fingerprinted. You know, I've never, you know, been arrested or I've never applied for a job that's been fingerprinted. No one has my fingerprints. Right. And that is a feeling of security, so to speak. When you go online and you register your name connected to your face, is that the issue? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, facial recognition is the new fingerprint. You know, when it comes to biometrics, it's preferred to have facial or iris recognition over fingerprints. Uh, so absolutely. And again, I could be wrong. I just don't think I am. I really don't. I, I really do believe that information is being gathered and it's certainly being transmitted. There's no question about that. So even with something as simple as, it, well, maybe not Instagram, but what's the one where they delete all the uh, Snapchat? Even with something like Snapchat, where they have all these filters, where, again, they will do some sort of change to you. That's not all occurring on your device. I mean, some of that information is being transmitted. So it's definitely there. Now, I do want to say one thing. 
because I don't want people to start turning off like the uh, touch ID or the face ID on their phone. That information is very safe. It never leaves your phone. It's stored on your phone. It's the same thing with your computer. Um, if you have your computer set up where it recognizes your face and it unlocks your computer, there's nothing dangerous about that. If I were to take that computer and get onto that little chip where it's stored, that chip is designed in such a way that as soon as I touch it, I try to remove it, it self-destructs. Uh, and that's true with our phones also. So there's no risk there. I don't want people to think that. But these social media sites or these fun little apps that we download uh, that take this information, they're collecting that data. And I, I do believe it's going to foreign countries. I mean, another good example, if you remember way back when smartphones first started, remember they had a flashlight app where you could actually take make it a flashlight and you could turn it on your little camera light or whatever. Turns out that app that not only did it do that, but it was also tracking everybody. And they got a lot of information from that. And it turned out to be basically malware. And again, from a security standpoint, obviously, but just I, I understand just from having data from consumers and being able to use it. And you can sell it, I would imagine, that information. All right, Mark, look, this is this is very helpful. You know, anything else or parting words here that you want to leave, leave to our, our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you. Two things. One, you know, identifying phishing isn't always that hard. I don't tell people you have to look at every word or every letter in an email address, but if there's anything suspicious about it, really focus on it. Uh, there's typo domains where they'll go register a similar name. Like we've seen foxrothschild.com registered uh, where the I is replaced with an L, and it's really hard to tell unless you're paying attention. Same thing with Cyrillic letters. They'll use Cyrillic letters that look uh, like Roman letters or Latin letters, and they're not. And so, you know, just be suspicious with that. And the other thing, two more things. One is that when you get the link in the email that they want you to click on, I, I know we all know to hover over it, but if you just hover over it and actually pay attention, the answer is always there. You know, if it changes, it's going to tell you it's going to take you somewhere different. And a lot of people ignore that. And the final thing, and it, it's hard, I, I admit it, it's hard, and it's really become more difficult as we started working remotely and going back and forth and all that good stuff. But when you're on your phone and you get an email, the way both Android and Apple code it is that you're, if it's coded correctly, you just see the name of the person. You don't see the email address. And that's problematic because if you're on your computer, you're much more likely to see the actual email address. And I don't know about you, but if I'm getting a phone and it says it came from Aaron Weems, I click on it to read it. I don't then go back to the top of the email and see who it really came from. I already know it came from Aaron. And it turns out that could be any other email address in the world. And I wouldn't know it unless I go back to the top and look. So we're seeing an extraordinary number of victims that are getting tricked on their phones, on their mobile devices. That's where the ransomware has really become very effective. So I encourage all of your listeners, be careful with your phones. I mean, really be careful and pay attention to what you're doing. If there's anything suspicious about it, just go pay attention to what's at the top, see what the real email address is. That is some great information, Mark. You've given us a lot to think about. Ironically enough, we're taping this right before Halloween, and you probably have given us the most frightening uh, episode that we're going to have of the year. Uh, but thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for the information you've been able to impart upon our listeners and educating us a little bit about how pervasive and how important it is to pay attention to the data that we're exposing to the internet and to the world. Thank you very much for being here. Great, Anthony, Aaron. Thank you. 
Thank you. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash law in the family. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.